Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining. Today, I'm speaking again with Lee Jessam. Lee is a professor of psychology at Rutgers, and he's recently working on some stuff on extremism, um, and they recently put out one report, and I think they're working on more stuff, and this is kind of like a, I don't know, pet interest of mine, so I, I bugged Lee about this for a bit, so I thought I would get him to come on and talk about what he's been doing. Hey, Lee, thanks for coming back on. Hi, uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah. So yeah. So I mean, I like I noticed at the start of this semester, you put out something about a course you're teaching on. I think it's extremism or radicalization, um, and then you started doing this uh, work. You just had the report out, uh, and it's you and I think believe five other people that are working on this. So if you wanted to talk about that, because like I said, I I took a couple of courses on terrorism when I was back in college, and a few things like that, and it just you know like I said a little bit of a pet interest. So go from there. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, you know, we, I mean, I'm almost reluctant to say we. I was really, I was involved. I was really happy to be involved. But I was kind of a minor player in this report on, it's not just on the rise of left-wing extremism. It's on how, um, and when I say left-wing extremism, I guess that's a vague term. We use the term anarcho-socialists. So, so these are, you know, some, they're probably referred to or thought of in the popular press as Antifa, which is not really much of an organization. It's kind of like a label for sort of violent left-wing extremist groups. But these are actual groups. I mean, they're, yeah, they're somewhat organized. Um, uh, they have names and they have web pages and they have social networks, which they sort of exploit to both incite outrage against normal, you know, what is at the moment sort of normal sort of liberal democratic processes. They could have objections to those processes, but they they really these groups are. Very, very extreme, and they would, as far as I can tell, their goal is to bring down the system. Uh, so, uh, and, and they are at the core of a lot of the violence that's been occurring in places like Portland and Seattle, as well as other places. Um, so, the, 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 you know, I want to be really clear, there have been plenty of peaceful demonstrations, even in Portland. In fact, even in Portland, most of what's going on there are like regular people protesting and objecting. And there have also been police and law enforcement abuses, you know, and, and, and going too far and probably to the point of being criminal. And that's some of the left critique of heavy-handed police tactics in dealing with protests is also justified. But that wasn't the point of this report. The point of this report was it was really one of the first to come out that really doing a deep dive into both the existence of and sort of how these groups use social networks, such as you know, Facebook and Twitter and 4chan and Reddit to both to organize, inspire, essentially, I mean, I would describe it as revolution, at least at minimum anarchy, um, and, and even, to organize tactics 
for specific, you know, I mean, they're not protests. They're, they're, they're it, it, you know, they're, they're not really riots. Riots imply something kind of like random and, and out of control. These are intentional attacks on, on symbols of sort of government power and institutions, such as police and, and municipal government offices. So anyway, that's what this paper was about. I'm just going to bring this up now because uh, the story just came out. In Minnesota, it was, uh, whatever, the group Bugaloo Boys or something like that, or Bugaboo Boys, I don't even know their name. Oh, 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 so I, I have to interrupt. This, I was not involved with this, but the same group that produced this expose of sort of anarcho-socialist sort of extremists, prior to my involvement, had a sort of pretty big splash report exposing the boob, especially the boogaloo, but other like really, you know, anti-government sort of revolutionary right-wing extremist groups. Um, so yeah, one of those was the boogaloo. And the boogaloo turns out to be very, very tricky because they're kind of cute, right? Like their, their mark was like dressing in Hawaiian shirts. So it's not to be threatening about some guy dressed in a Hawaiian shirt, but you know, these guys, you know, there have actually been a series of arrests over the last, you know, few months of these guys for attacks on police. Uh, you know, there's, right, there's the thing in Minnesota, there's the thing in, Mich in Michigan, which is related, but quite the same. So, so these guys are sort of, you know, one of their appeals is that they are actually cute and funny. Yeah. And well, it's about... Okay, the reason I bring that up is because now this has nothing to do with either Antifa or you know, Antifa collectively or these guys, but Eamon Bundy, so the guy, the rancher out in, I don't know, I can't remember, like, let's say, you know, Wyoming or something like that, that rancher who, who fought the law because he wanted to water. He sided with Black Lives Matter because Black Lives Matter is anti-police. There is a lot of similarity between, like, Okay, I'm going to give you my tinfoil hat thing of what I'm seeing, and it's you've got. I think the I think the biggest problem is in education, and in something that uh, free range kids is working on, where kids are lacking independence and kids are lacking responsibility, and they're not getting the confidence to do things on their own. And then what's going on in the education system, where it's okay now it's. Out, outright okay we're having critical race theory k through 12 but before it was just smaller things where oh you have to be careful not to hurt someone you have to be careful not to harm someone that idea of repressive tolerance the more i look into that the more i see it like you know it started coming into education in the mid 80s that kind of idea plus giving kids less responsibility giving not even like so you're not even giving them the putting confidence in them that a 12 year old can go to the store by themselves and get a, you know, a quart of milk, right? Like that kind of stuff involved. And then you have these ideas of how, and you see it in the education again, like the West is the worst place in the world. It's done the worst harm. It's done the most. So kids seeing this stuff and then, you know, you get onto university or whatever, as you're getting older, you know, the, I'm not saying it's a large population, but you don't need a lot. So then Antifa right. or the Bugaloo boys can then go to these people because there's that small percentage who now really feel disenfranchised, feel that, you know, 
either they're yep. being attacked because they're white and they're the cause of all of this, or they were attacked. And it's, it's see, it's creating the fertile ground for these groups to then go, you know, seed their ideas and get extremism. Like, I don't want Antifa and I don't want the Bugaloo boys. I don't want either of these people. Like, I, I don't, you know, I, you know, I, uh, yeah, well, I completely agree with that. I, I, the, 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 you know, my, the, the tone for, for me personally, both in part because of my work with this group, the NCRI, the Network Contagion Research Institute, which mm -hmm. sounds really, you know, antiseptic, but they're like studying all this extremism mm -hmm. stuff. Um, uh, it has, has, I mean, on the one hand, I don't, you know, there's a danger in overstating the danger from these extremist groups, mm -hmm. right? Like there's, you know, I mean, especially for me now that I'm actually studying these groups, there's a very, you know, there's, there's a long tradition in academic scholarship of people who study something, see it everywhere. Like, yeah. you know, and some of it is just genuine. They really kind of, maybe discover something and there's a certain almost evangelical component. They want to tell the world. They really do see it as a bigger problem than other people see it. And that's fine. But there's, there's a risk of it sort of becoming self-promotion. So, you know, the, the version for me on this work would be saying, oh my God, must we extremists are taking over the country and like everybody is has to worry about it and all this kind of stuff. And that's, that, that's too far. That's, you know, they're not, no, right. I think, you know, there's a bona fide threat. They've been under the radar. Uh, they've been under the radar in large part because most of the mainstream media leans so far left. They, they're motivated to deny it. They're not paying attention. You know, they support the, the sort of the goals of a lot of the social, social justice protests. So it's sort of hard for them to see it. Or even if they see it, I suspect a lot of them feel almost like traitors, you know, to their own political group if they call out someone on their side. Like, this is a common thing among, uh, 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 among sort of political groups is this whole sort of black sheep thing. Like you can't criticize your in-group and all this stuff, right? So, so you have that. Um, and then the same thing in academia. Academia means so far left that the left-wing extremists are largely below people's radar. And in fact, uh, people including me, who have called out left-wing extremists have sometimes been the target of sort of cancellation attempts and denunciations and all this sort of stuff. Because like, who would call out? Yeah, everyone knows, you know, the, 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 the social justice movement uh, protests are justified. There's a long history of racism. Finally, people are doing something about it. So how dare you highlight, you know, this tiny fraction of left-wing extremists? It's like, and that's sort of the nature of the yeah. denunciation. So, so, but my, but my point is, it, it's not part of my scholarship. So, and I want, just want to recognize that I, like every other scholar that does work in any area, is at risk of overstating the importance of their own work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, again, I mean, like, okay, I don't, you know, I, I, I worry about... Like, I'm not saying every single teacher out there is a social justice warrior. I, I, I don't think that. I don't, I, I don't think every administrator is. I, I think that the people in the, like, my worry is, again, maybe I'm seeing too much of it and I'm just reading too much of it. I don't know. But I see it in, like, a middle management problem. 
Like these are people who like go to, to go to meetings. These are people who like to set stuff up. If that process is corrupted and you know, a, a teacher gets a curriculum, it looks good. You don't want to, you know, you're teaching kids about racism and how not to be racist. It sounds great. But some of that stuff that's underlying it, like there's one book that's being used in pencil in some schools in Pennsylvania right now. And it's from like, it's a little picture book that you would read to toddlers or little, little kids. Like let's say up to about the second grade. I mean, and it's, you know, it says whiteness is a contract to, with racism. And I'm like looking at that. I'm like, okay, you don't teach that to little kids. And so if that's yeah. making it down to some public schools, there is a problem somewhere in that chain. And again, like yeah. it's, it's not to put something like in Texas where they, they had stuff, and I think it was even up until last year, where they were denying, you know, the civil wars about slavery and denying, like, you know, minimizing all that. Like, that's just as bad. Yeah, but again, right. there's, there's a problem in the middle management somewhere. So yeah. I, I, think it, I think we should have to take a look at this. I think, you know, I, I, again, oh, my God, white supremacy is rising. We have to do something about it. And I don't disagree with that. You know, I'm brown. I don't want to see white supremacy rise. But... I equate it to Islam. Hey, oh, we defeated ISIS. No, you didn't. Look what's happening in Africa. A lot of those people are going back to right. you know, you know, the regions they came from. You, you beat the organization, but you didn't beat the ideology. You can, right. the FBI and you know, Homeland Security can go in and take out all these white supremacist groups today. But if you continuously teach kids that whiteness is a contract with racism, yeah. you're going to get Right. White kids who are pissed off, and you're going to get your know, black and brown yeah. kids who are pissed off, and you're going to just grow these groups. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, no, that's exactly right. So, the one of the we have not actually begun working on it, but one of the probably one of the two next papers that are probably going to come out of the this Network Contagion Research Institute, um, and one of the main reasons they brought me in actually was not this earlier paper on the sort of left-wing extremists. It was exactly your point that these, these things are connected. That is, the, the incendiary anarchic protests in Portland and other places are built on a network of ideas. And those ideas are exactly as you just described. I don't know if they're dominant yet, but they are ascendant. Um, throughout um, educational and intellectual and scientific and, and, and media institutions. They, you know, this whole whiteness. Like, yeah, this was, could you imagine if that was any other group? It would, it's, like, it's just like so obvious that this would be just beyond offensive. So, so to, you know, to, to, I, I mean, this would have to do hypothetical. I mean, Amy Wax had a couple of essays on how black culture contributes to inequality. Now, I, I, you know, I could um, disagree and would disagree with some of her analysis on the merits, but it was essentially a critique of blackness. And it evoked these, you know, hues and cries, and she was eventually removed from teaching first-year students because of it. So it's not like a hypothetical to say, well, imagine this with any other group. So, uh, I, you know, and so it, it is really, it's, it's bad, it, it, it is very bad. The, the, you know, in the 60s, one of the ideas was that 
you know, of the new left in the 60s um, was that, you know, protest, electoral change, none of that was going to work. The, the idea that, that had its roots then was referred to as the long march through the institutions. Yeah. And that was the idea that, you know, these sort of radicals and activists would have to do exactly what you just described, become middle managers, become school principals, become chairs of departments and deans and, you know, that whole, become, you know, the, the VP of HR in a corporation, and then you start instituting these policies. And you never announced that what you're, what you're instituting is, a, you rarely announce that what you're instituting is essentially an evolved form of, 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 of authoritarian Marxism. You, you never announced that. What you do is you create a, you know, a, a curriculum that focuses on the abuses of capitalism, right? So this is just classic propaganda. To, you know, not, not, and, and you can do that in a way that is true because there have been abuses of capitalism. Capitalism has produced some very bad things. Right? But if you focus exclusively on those, you're not going to get anything remotely resembling an honest or valid view of the world. But, but it is very effective at getting people to despise capitalism. And you never have to announce that you're basically instituting Marxist ideology. You never, you never announce it. You never have to announce it. The curriculum is true. You know, I mean, the Belgians did horrible things in the Congo, like millions of millions of deaths. That of colonial empire. It's horrible. And that's just one example. It's one of the worst examples. Obviously, there was you know the hundreds of years of slavery. So we, we could just you know, and, and the whole thing reminds me of. Do, do you know anything about American baseball? You're reasonably comfortable. Yeah. Okay. It, it would be like focusing on Babe Ruth strikeouts, and we could do that. Babe Ruth struck out more than anybody else in his era. He struck out early in games. He struck out late in games. He struck out during the regular season. He struck out in the World Series. All of those are true statements. If those were the only statements you are first to, can you say that Babe Ruth is a horrible baseball player? <laughs> okay, but it's the same thing with, uh, like, in that same vein. Like, there, there was a it was an ad or something. It was like a public service announcement. You know, like they used to do this feel good things. It was about Michael Jordan and about all the times he failed. Like, you know, a, the best basketball player in the world, their shooting percentage still sucks. You know, like, okay, going back to baseball, a 300 batting average is really good, but that's 30%. Right. right. You know, like you fail 70% of the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. Right. Well, that, that, you know, sorry, that goes to your, um, to your earlier point about sort of, uh, you didn't use the term anti-fragile, I don't think, but that was sort of the upshot of it. They're basically making people resilient. And that I completely agree with that. So as a psychologist, and, you, and I can and would relate this to sort of bigger cultural and political trends, but at the individual level, you need, uh, you're up to be a functioning human, you need to experience hardship and get through it and realize that you can get through it. And, and get through it doesn't necessarily mean a happy ending. Like sometimes it's not a happy ending, and, but you get through that also. And then when that happens to you enough, you know, when, when you're as a little kid, you know, you're on enough soccer teams that never win a game. You realize, well, you know, am I doing this to win or am I doing this because I enjoy playing? And if I enjoy playing, I don't really care whether I win or lose. I want to win. You know, I care a little bit. 
but I just want to play soccer. And I feel how terrible losing. And the minute you have that psychology, you are in a much better position to start winning, actually. Because now what you care about is doing the thing, not so much the outcome. People are like, okay, get woke out of education. Fine, you get woke out of education. But if you don't change that underlying thing where kids can never learn responsibility, like you said, or face hardship, you know, I'm sorry, I I don't want kids to feel bad for failing, but if you didn't learn the material, you shouldn't pass that that class. Uh, Absolutely. And, And I mean, I think it's a detriment to the child if you pass him, like if, if he didn't manage to meet the requirements of fourth grade English, every other class you can take fifth grade, but you know, fourth grade English, repeat that please, or do it over the summer or something like, I, you know, I, I don't have any data on this. So I'm really just yeah. winging it here. But yeah. as far as I can tell, there, there are a set of things that there, there's no real obvious, at least I haven't figured out or discovered the logical connection between them. But, but experientially, I, I think they are connected. So, so one is this idea that like, okay, experiencing bad things is not so terrible. That, that's like go out into the world and just like, you know, make your way through it. That's number one. Number two, sort of the emphasis on, 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 on fundamental individual rights. This is speech, association, anything like this. That, that you know, the, the whole, you know, cancel culture, and actually, Greg Lucino from Fire has great, it's just a Twitter thread. It should be an editorial on how the support for speech and free expression and free inquiry is not primarily a legal thing. It, obviously, there are legal issues and it can become a legal issue, but it's primarily cultural. That is, it doesn't matter. His argument is it hardly matters what the legal protections are if the culture doesn't support them. And it hardly matters if there aren't legal protections, if the culture does support it. So, so there's this idea of sort of like there's certain fundamental human rights. But there's due process. That process actually matters, you know, and, it, and, that, and, and this comes up in lots of ways. It, it, it includes, you know, uh, a denounce, denounce, the sort of cancel culture and the sort of denouncing people without giving them a chance to actually plead their case. It's like, you know, you convict them on the basis of whatever, social media reports or you know, the fact that your friend says something horrible. Um, so, so there's this emphasis on, on due process um, and, and the sort of rise in sort of identity politics and safetyism and collectivism. It's like all these things seem all connected to me. Maybe I'm just like, you know, inferring connection from completely coincidental correlations. Right, you know, like, there's, that great, there's a great website, I, I don't remember the details, but it, it, it shows that things like, you know, the production of cheese in Wisconsin is correlated with the national suicide rate. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, right, yeah, it's a great website. So maybe I'm just doing that, but, but, but it, doesn't, it doesn't seem that way. It seems to me that these things are connected. And connected in the sense that, especially among people who are actively involved in discussing these issues, they often go together. So the same person who has sort of a flagrant disregard for due process will often not really, you know, will will participate in outrage mobs and denunciation mobs, right? They're they're connected in some way. So, you know, and psychologically, I don't fully understand the nature of that connection, actually, but they do seem connected. Yeah, um... Okay, speaking about this, because like, 
I was speaking to a couple of people the other day, and this was, I think it was spurred on by the the whole New York Post, Hunter Biden, hard drive, whatever. Okay, now, uh, okay, my take on this hard drive is, and I, you know, maybe I'm completely out of it. I don't know. I, I, I don't think there's anything. It doesn't look like there's anything I think the worst thing you're going to find is, yes, Biden lied a little bit about knowing anything about, okay, but again, it's a politician that lied. It's a day that ends in Y. Who cares? (laughs) But instead of, okay, if that story had come out and you exposed it for what it was, it would have gone away in a day or two. It's like, what, nine, ten days later, I brought it up, but people are still talking about it. The cover-up, like, you know, the, the censoring of it, you know, I'm calling it censoring. The censoring by Facebook and Twitter caused this, all these conspiracy things to come out. Right. Now, now I mean, I, I put this hypothetical to them. Like, I, I did this, a couple, you know, I said I spoke to them a couple of days ago. Now, you take that story and you change a couple of facts. Instead of Joe Biden, it's Trump. Instead of Hunter Biden, it's Eric Trump. Okay, everything else is the same. And instead of Giuliani finding it, it's AOC, and the New York Times reports it. Would that story have been banned? Right. No, I mean, that's, that's, I mean it's, a, it's an excellent question. I think the answer is almost definitely not. Um, uh, and and that, not because the story would have had any more actual credibility, but because of the biases in the media. I mean, you know, right? So, so, so they would want, I mean, so when... Sorry, I'm just going to interrupt for for a second. The the reason I bring this up is going back to the conspiracy theories and things again. Now, if they had let that go, nothing. Like, it would have been proof for what it was was false. But because they censored it, all these conspiracy theories are coming up. And now, if if they had censored the story about Trump, like, there would be just as many conspiracy theories. Like, that's that's what I'm trying to – like, the censorship is causing the conspiracy theories. I'm not saying let conspiracy theories go. I'm saying if you stop censoring, you'll have less conspiracy theories. Right. So, you know, there are are two ideas now in tension. I I mean, this is stuff I read about. I'm not involved in the scholarship Mm -hmm. on. uh, But there – I I mean, look, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, these are like proprietary platforms, right? They're not – you know, people treat them like public forums – and there's a way in which they are, but they're at the base, they're run by private companies that can literally do anything they want. Oh, yeah. uh, and, uh, you know, within the law, they can do anything they want. And they can often have the laws changed so that they can do things that are illegal also because they're so rich and powerful. Um, so, but there's a tension between a growing recognition that the, and I'm going to restrict my discussion to the United States because it's what I know. I don't know. I don't really know what's going on. Actually, I have a student who's in Nigeria. So I actually have some information about that in Nigeria. So there's a few places I could do know something about. But, you know, I, I don't know anything about Mali or Switzerland, you know. <laughs> like, I don't know what the, so I'm going to restrict my thing to the United States. Um, there's a, a sort of robust and a, I think a healthy discussion in sort of intellectual, political type circles. You know, there's been this rise of intentional disinformation. 
And, you know, the, 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 large, the recognition has probably come from Russian and Chinese disinformation uh, attempts. But you can get disinformation, you know, internally. There's plenty of that also. So during the last election cycle, my favorite example were people who really believed that Dearborn, Michigan was under Sharia rule. You know, and Michigan went Trump. Right? So, so, you know, you only need to convince a lot of people that like this, oh my God, the, you know, the radical, radical Israel really is on our shores and they're taking over. So, so, I, I, you know, th this is a problem. This, you know, that this kind of information is, and not just the yeah, Dearborn. I mean, you have the whole QAnon, you know, pedophilia. This is the world international conspiracy of pedophilia. <laughs> like, this is just completely not crazy stuff, right? So, so you have that, and and so there's a desire to do something to limit the damage that comes from that, whether it's internal or Russian or Chinese. Um, and then there's also a recognition of exactly what you're saying. And if you if you shut it down completely, if you you know Facebook shuts down the pages, if Twitter closes the accounts, um, uh, if the newspapers refuse to cover it, then people who believe this stuff will go elsewhere. And you know that's what, you know, the rise of 4chan as a sort of white supremacist hate site emerged in that way, actually. So. People will find somewhere to you know, do their stuff. So I, I don't have an answer to that. Like, you know, disinformation is really bad. Uh, uh, is, 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 you know, effectively suppressing or censoring it. Is that the answer? You know, even on a private platform? I, have, I don't know. Maybe it is. I, I, it doesn't seem like a good answer. But no, but, but just letting it run rampant doesn't seem like the answer either. Yeah, but uh, simply refuting uh, it doesn't seem to work. So now what are we left with? Okay, but here's the thing: like running it, letting it run rampant right now. I I don't think it's either censor or we allow it. Again, I think this goes back to education. Okay, I've spoken to a couple of teachers. I've only got a couple of data points here, but you know when you look at it, there most public schools are teaching the kids to take the standardized tests. They're not teaching the subject. They're teaching them to get the right answer in the standardized test. So if you don't give them those tools where, you know what, let a kid write a paragraph on a story he was read in English class and he might make some mistakes of interpretation, but if he shows his thought process and if you can show him where your thought process went wrong, that's a much better tool than teaching that kid yeah. to take a standardized test in English and pass it or, you know, any class and get to the point where he's in university now and he doesn't have the tools to read Alex Jones and realize that lizard people coming right. up from the center of the earth to you know, molest children is not a valid idea. Okay, you know, when you've gotten to a college kid who thinks that you've lost the battle. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I mean, like, I, like, I, again, I don't think there's, it, it's not that free speech isn't, is the golden, you know, the silver <laughs> bullet here or anything like that, right? There is, I think there's a lot of problems institutionally, you know, up and down the thing. And I think, you know, frankly, I'm, I, you know, like, I'm thankful that people are starting to look at where is this coming from. And I think yeah. we have to take, go back and take a look at some of the policies that were put in, like, 
let's stop coddling kids. You know, this, um, I don't like with Thomas Sowell's latest book, their uh, charter schools and, you know, the, uh, their enemies. Like there's one example he gives, there's a charter school in New York city and in the same building as a public school. They're in the same neighborhood. They have the same population base. The charter school is one of the top in the state and the public school is one of the bottom. It's in the same goddamn building. Like, okay, maybe take a look at what's being done right and wrong. You know? But I mean, like, no one wants it because like, it, it seems to be like, you know, we can't criticize our side. Now, if, okay, this was again, something I, I said the other day and it's like, I'm not going to let this go. And maybe I'm just fixated on it, but I, I you know, if you don't, you know, if you keep pushing this th stuff through and you're like, you know, you, you, you don't teach kids, you keep giving them this one-sided thing, you're going to get pushback. You're going to get people who aren't, like I said, who aren't capable to learn. And, you know, like, I don't see how teaching, how having a slanted education system in one direction then leads to normal healthy kids like i have a friend who's a counselor in the uk and he's had people come up to him and say i've got anxiety because i'm white these are people in their 20s you know there was that picture of like with the george floyd protest there was a little girl she held up a sign that said privilege black lives matter and yeah, yeah. That little girl's face i mean okay i saw a video of a young black kid i don't know how old he was under 10 running scared because he heard a police siren I mean, we're doing a huge disservice. Like, okay, I'm not saying the police crime, you know, there's a problem with police violence. But if you put out this thing where it's all racist, or if you know, like, they're all giving you one silver bullet, solve the racism, solve, you know, solve, it's not. It is, yeah. a, it's a mixture of things. And, you know, yeah. but no one's looks, it doesn't look, I mean, I know you guys are starting to, but no one seems to be looking into it. And if anyone does, it's like, nope, it's, you know, it's the right wing they're doing it. It's, Right. Well, so, you know, so this is, so I'm teaching this semi-underground graduate class that, um, uh, which I refer to it as a semi-underground class because it was by invitation only and was not announced. Um, and that was actually by, just kind of an interesting story in some way. Um, it, it, I pulled the class together over the summer, kind of in response to the protests and unrest and all that sort of stuff. Um, uh, and, and in response to the, you know, the, my own denunciation and the, the attempt to cancel me and all this sort of stuff. And I was like, what the hell is this? And, and why, you know, this is, it was just a great thing, what the hell is this? So it was originally going to be just a discussion group. And then I realized, well, you know, most of them were students, although not, it turned out not all, but most of them were students. In fact, why not give them credit for it? Let's make this into a class. So we all agreed on that. I, if I, I agreed I wouldn't make the requirements too onerous. There is some writing at the end. Um, and the, in August, I asked them quite blank, um, should I announce this to the rest of the department and the university, and if so, how? And they were, there was one exception, but the, the, there was a very quick, and she came over very quickly. They, all saying, no, don't announce it. Uh, you know, there's a risk of the class being canceled. And they meant that in both sense. That sense of first it would be denounced and then it would actually be canceled, like literally canceled. And they just didn't want to take the risk. So, it, so that's my, that's the story, the backstory of my 
semi-underground graduate class. It's not completely underground. I mean, it is now listed. They're getting credit for it. But okay, so that's the background. Um, the, the class, I mean, I sort of facetiously refer to it as the psychology of panel revolution. Uh, you know, the formal title is the psychology of conflict, protest, and radicalization. Um, and it includes, you know, conventional social psych social science empirical research, you know, surveys, experiments on things like authoritarianism and the effect of this protest, but it also includes historical sources, so they've read the chapters from Gulag, and they've read a chapter from this great book on the uh, Chinese Cultural Revolution, um, lots of other sort of just essays and stuff. So this past week, um, we were focusing on the effectiveness and we're going to continue this this week. But we, we started readings and a discussion of the sort of history of the effectiveness versus ineffectiveness and intellectual justification for and against violent versus nonviolent protests. And so so let, let me get back to your original point, which was about sort of racism and police and all this other stuff. This wasn't a required reading in the class, but one of the the class is for two and a half hours, so it's really fairly easy if somebody makes some point to then look for other sources relevant to that point dynamically in the middle of the class. So we were having this discussion, and so I called up data on the number of homicides in Baltimore um, after, before and after the 2015 riots. And the the Baltimore riots were in response to some police killing. I forget. Was it Freddie Gray? Yeah, it was Freddie Gray. Yeah, yeah, I think it was Freddie Gray. That I think that's right. That's right. So it was a you know, cops killed a unarmed black guy. You know, I, I don't know the full black story, the full backstory, but you know, yeah, I, even this is the thing with the cops killing these killing. People, I mean, unless they're directly, immediately threatened, they shouldn't really be doing it. But unless their life is really threatened. Right? I mean, it's just, there's no excuse. Then let the guy go. Like, you know, don't kill, don't kill somebody, even if you have lots of good reasons to think they're a bad person. Okay, anyway. So, so there are these riots. And there is a discontinuous spike in homicides starting the year after those riots. So the, the number of murders in, in Baltimore prior to those riots were around 200, 220 a year. Afterwards, every year it's been over 300. So what is the explanation? I'm, it's probably not simple. The most obvious that comes to mind is that the police said, uh, okay, we just have to retreat. And now, if that's true, I, and I, I don't, you know, haven't done the deep dive to know that's true, that is plausible, which doesn't make it true. Um, you know, you have an extra hundred people, most of them black, every year killed because the police have, have, have felt the political need to retreat, if that's true. Yeah, well, I mean, we're starting to see some of that now. Like, there's that thing that just came out from uh, Minnesota. Um, like, uh, like what, the, after the after the riots, like when they had the defunding the police, the number of crimes, everything that just, I mean, it just right. came out now. I, 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 this is so odd. I like, you, you know, 
you can have common sense, and every once in a while, well, you actually want the data. But if you don't have police, what do you think is going to happen? What kind of idiot thinks that that's a good solution? Which is not justified doing nothing about police mispractice. Absolutely. If the police are screwing up, and they are screwing up, things should be done about it, and we need to figure that out. Yes, absolutely. Removing police? What are you, nuts? Are you completely clueless? It's like, oh, my God. Yeah. But, okay, again, I'm going to go back to this, because, like I said, maybe I am fixating too much, and I'd like someone to tell me I am. But there was a study done by Zach Goldberg, and he put the article out in uh, Tablet Magazine. And then last year, there was someone, um, I forget his name, who did a similar thing just on Twitter, but they used some data analytics. And um, Zach's article, I think, was based on his PhD thesis, uh, was about the use of the terms racism, racist, white supremacy in the media. Um, And the other person also included Islamophobia. But if you see it, uh, the one that Zach did, it's like, I think it's New York Times, LA, uh, Washington Post, LA Times, um, I forget the the fourth one, but it's starts going up slowly around 2008. By the time Obama's two terms are over, it's tripled from what it was at the start. And already in 2008, it was tripled from what it was in 2000 or doubled from what it was in 2000. Now, if you're constantly getting these articles and they're only focusing on one side of the problem, you're not getting a balanced view. And again, I think you know, that, that has to have something to do with people going towards Antifa or BLM or you know, the other side, the right with like Bugaloo Boys and Proud Boys and all this other shit. Like, I don't think you would have that many. And again, it's a small problem. It's not a lot of people. But you know, if the number of groups doubled, you got a problem there. And it's not just, oh, it's the right wing or the you know, YouTube making people radicalized. It's, like, it's everything. It, you know, they're running out of stuff. Like this year, it was master bedroom is racist because the term master. It's like, come on. Well, you see, Titanium McGrath has a long thread on how everything is racist. And it's not her own stuff. It is, each tweet is linked to four bona fide articles. These mass media or, or scholarly articles every once in a while to social media posts. But mostly it's like, you know, like The Guardian and some. Yeah. Golf is racist. Jogging is racist. I, I, I mean, it's just, you know, the bedrooms are racist. It's just, it's like, and the list goes on for at least 24 or 25 tweets, each one having four of these. So it's like, like and, so, so, and, and the obvious thing when Hikaria is doing it, it is a sort of mocking commentary mm-hmm. on the doing of it. But each one that she presents is presented in all earnest most by credible sources. Yeah. I mean, okay. The most egregious one I still have seen to date was in the New York times. It was on the front page of their op-ed page. Um, it was four black girls beaten up by two South Asian boys. These were all high school students. And the headline of this piece and the whole gist of the piece was that was because the Brown kids had internalized whiteness. <laughs> I can't. Oh my God, I didn't see that. <laughs> if I read that, it's like, come on. Okay, first of all, those kids did something wrong. And yes, there could be a racial component of it because I can tell you about you know, racism in South Asians against black people. There's a lot of it. Um, but 
you know, it, it, it doesn't help those girls. It doesn't help those boys because they're being let off because, you know, <laughs> white people did it. I mean, it's, there, there's no good coming. And it's, you're going to make white people resentful. Yeah. And if it's, you know, like this whole idea of, well, well, you know, the, the white fragility idea, like get over it, like, come on, you know, like that too is. So I, I, I think that's absolutely right. Where I'm, I've, what I've seen, you know, the last few months, I mean, it looks, God knows, given 2016, it looks like Biden's going to win the election. So this is not a comment about who's going to win the election. But I've seen, you know, seriously thoughtful people um, who most or all of their lives voted for Democrats saying that they, you know, unhappily find themselves um, voting for, deciding to, to vote for Trump because of how bad this sort of, um, this, this sort of ideological takeover and its downstream consequences, such as, you know, denunciations, cancel cultural firings, you know, ostracism, that how bad that, their argument is that not only it's gotten bad, it's getting worse. And, and Trump, in their view, is the only one doing anything about it. And that not only won't the Democrats do anything about it, if anything, they will coddle it and bring it along. So I don't, that's not my view. I mean, I understand that view. I think there's a lot of truth to that, that view. I don't end up at the place of, well, therefore I'm going to vote for Trump. But, but there is a lot of that out there. So that is exactly what you're describing, is that people, people are looking at this, they are, you know, for my, sort of justifiably angry and resentful about it, and they will organize themselves um, in, in whatever ways they can in order to fight it, um, uh, no matter how much they seem to be in retreat at the moment. Well, okay, my, my take on... Okay, I'm I'm in Canada, so I can't even vote. So you people can tell me to go to hell if you want. But I, I would I would vote down ticket. Like honestly, like okay, no, I, yeah. I there's no way I could bring myself to vote for Trump. Like no, I just can't. Like I I don't. I, I think he's incompetent at everything he does, and no, I wouldn't vote for him. But yeah. Biden being slightly less awful than that is not enough of a reason for me to vote for him. It's not. And I okay. Again, I don't think Biden is woke. I don't, I don't think he has a clue what this stuff is. Right. I think that, that's my take. Uh, that is my take. I don't think that's a clue. But when I read his equality plan, when I read his you know, economic equity plan, when I, when I see Elizabeth Warren saying we need to embrace anti-racism more, when I see Kamala Harris saying we need to embrace more intersectionality, I don't think Biden has the wherewithal to stand up to this. Uh, okay, I, I, you might be talking about James Lindsay because he's, I mean, most famously, I think he's the most famous one right now because, you know, he... No, but not, that's not only him. If it was only him, he'd be an outlier. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I know there's other. I know there's others, but, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but, but I, the reason I bring him up is because he made this point and I think it's, it actually made me laugh because if you saw the whole Evergreen thing and there was the, 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 the you know, the president of the school, Bridges, he said, he's like, Joe Biden is George Bridges. And it's true, he is. Joe Biden would stand up there and put his hands down when they told him to put his hands down. Okay, he'd wait to ask for permission to go pee. Okay, I know he's not going to stand up to it. And But again, I the reason I say vote down ticket is because schools are a local issue. Police is a local issue. Yes, the Department of Education can say we're going to stop funding for this stuff or we're going to fund it more. 
But if the local parents get involved, if you get involved in all your local stuff, you can put a stop to a lot of the stuff, a lot yeah. of the stuff that affects your day-to-day lives. And yeah. if you can put a stop to that, you can then focus on other more big, important things. That's why I, I, I don't think either of those, like if I was in the States and I was a citizen, neither of those two candidates or those two parties, I feel are deserving of my vote. Well, so, so, that's my take on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I understand and genuinely understand and respect that. I, I have done that in the past. Um, I actually did that in 2016 because New Jersey was a lot for Hillary. So I figured, I, you know, I mean, if you, if, you know, if the really only two choices were Hillary and Trump, I would have voted for Hillary. But I didn't have to worry about that. Um, but, 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 uh, <laughs> In, more, in a way more extreme than the other cousin, she had very large downsides. But obviously so, so did Trump. And I was hoping that the negatives on both candidates were so large that a viable third party might emerge. Not that they would win the election, but that rather than getting like 2% of the vote, you know, they get 10% of the vote or something, or 8% of the vote or something. And then, and then that would be the building block for the emergence of an alternative to the Democrats and Republicans. So I voted Libertarian because that was the, I mean, I have a Libertarian element in how I think about things, but it was not any like, you know, commitment on my part to the Libertarian. They were just the closest, they were the, most, the highest vote getting third party over the last several elections. So it's good, okay, like maybe they'll get seven or eight or even 10% or even 12% if there was enough. It, it disaffected people. So that totally didn't happen. That completely didn't happen. So they got like 2% or something like that. It was really amazing. They got slightly more than they always get. But it was like hardly noticeable. Like, you know, it, was, it was just completely self-flat. So, um, you know, I kind of have given, you know, the last time the United States had a viable third party um, was in the 1850s when the Republican Party emerged. I mean, in the prior to that, it was the Whigs and the Democrats, um, and uh, a whole bunch of forces came together. Um, there were Democrats who were disaffected with slavery. Um, there were pro-slavery Whigs, and so there was this entire reorganization, primarily inspired by, you know, opposition, support versus opposition to slavery at that time. And that's—it's it, it, more obvious. It's always, everything's always more complicated than everything else than, than, than it sounds. But that was a lot of the upshot of how the Republican Party emerged. Uh, but but it emerged by first winning lower, you know, local elections. You know, state assemblymen and Congress and Senate and all that kind of stuff. And, and so it, it actually emerged from the ground up rather than, you know, full blown in a presidential election. And I, I think that if that's ever going to happen, which I would root for strongly, I would, I would really love for there to be a third alternative to the Democrats and Republicans. I think that competition would be really healthy. Um, but uh, I don't think that's going to happen absent a successful grassroots type thing. And I just don't see that on the horizon at all. So I've surrendered, at least for now, voting for third parties. Yeah. No, okay, like, again, like, I, I, you know, a couple of people you know, put it out, like, I just tell them, like, vote your conscience. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. If someone votes for Biden or someone votes for Trump, that's not going to be the deciding factor in me, are they a horrible person um, or not. Like, yeah. I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you where my, 
my head's at at this point like i yeah. can't i can't support either one of those idiots no yeah. no way at all <laughs> no but okay you're saying okay let's say a third party gets 12 percent or whatever like okay i think i would do two things or if you had you know 10 to 10 to 15 percent of the people just write in something like they're both morons okay <laughs> And it comes down to a close vote. Okay, I'm, I'm with you. I think Biden will win, but let's say it comes down to a close popular vote or whatever. Both the parties are going to look at that and say, you know what? If we got that, if we got that 10%, there wouldn't be any dispute. There wouldn't, you know, we might have won both the houses and and the presidency or whatever. Right? You, you have. So it might be a wake-up call for at least a losing party to get better candidates or, or do something different. I completely, I completely agree with that, but it just hasn't happened. And, I, and, and it was like, if it, if it, in my recent lifetime, if it was going to happen, I think it would have happened in 2016 because of how sort of, how much disdain there was for both candidates. But even that didn't produce it. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. you know, there, there, this is beyond my expertise, that there are, there's political science sort of process work that, argues, you know, pretty persuasively that when you have that winner-take-all type elections, which is what we have, you know, via the Electoral College, or, um, th- that those create incentives, sort of unovercomable incentives that inexorably push towards a two-party system. Yeah. No, I mean, like, like again, like, my, my, my nightmare scenario in your election, and, okay, I'm Canadian, but it, no, but it affects like like your policies affect me more than just about any other. You know, yeah. outside the United States, Canada gets affected more by American policy than anyone right. else. Yeah. If either party wins, right? Like I, you know, like I said, I think Biden's going to win. So let's say Biden wins, the Democrats get two third majority in both houses, and like, I don't even know if there's a possibility, but let's say it is, and they get seventy five percent, seventy five percent of the state gubernatorial legislatures. <laughs> Okay, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but like there is there your nightmare scenario. If one of these parties gets that right now, they can change the constitution as they want. You know, okay, no, I know, I, no I, that, that's what you need to, ch- to make a constitutional amendment or to change an amendment. You need those two third majorities in both the houses. You need 75% of the slate legislatures to approve all that. I mean, okay, yeah, right. there's, there's a couple legal hurdles to go through beforehand, but if you have that, that possibility is there. And right now, I don't think anyone wants either of these two parties in the state they're in fiddling with the Constitution. Like, I think there's a lot of stuff at stake. Like, unfortunately, okay, I, I, I have libertarian leanings. I want small government. But I think it's gotten to the point where if you want government out of your, out of your life, you're going to have to have – your life is going to have to be interested in the government to a larger extent than it was. You have to pay more attention if you don't want that government, which is, which sucks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, so this was, you know, the historical I don't know, this aspect of this that I find interesting is that that was that kind of thinking, as far as I can tell, was a lot of what pushed both the exploration of the new world, you know, by the, by the Europeans, and by the push Western, Western from the early Americans. It, it, it was, you know, I mean, all the way they sort of like pillaged and plundered. But the, the, the main, that's all true, but the, 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 but the impetus wasn't like, well, let's go out and, you know, exploit and enslave some Indians. That was not really like the purpose. 
The purpose was to get away from civilization, not be told what to do, and, you know, kind of, so there's no safety valve. There's no space for people who want to sort of shape government, what they experience, what they see as government intrusion or even oppression. They, there's no way for them to get away with, get away from it because like, it, there's no place to go anymore. I don't wanna... That safety valve is gone. Yeah, but okay, I, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I got to ask, like the disinformation stuff, right? People are saying, oh, disinformation, disinformation. Now, I don't want to get into argument with mass. I, you know, I've got low, I, no, I've got one kidney. I've got a low immune system. When I go Ooh. out, I wear a mask. I do what I got to do. If I, if I see someone not wearing a mask, I'm not going to walk up close up to them and yell at them because, no, I want to keep my distance from them, right? Like, I think that's the best thing to do, but... When you had all these things, like put on your mask, uh, you, you had the protests in Michigan just before the George Floyd incident, the anti-mask and the anti-lockdown protests. And then George Floyd happened and all of a sudden you get these protests and then you have the New England Journal of Medicine saying racism is a worse virus than COVID. I'm sorry, but if you're going to talk about disinformation, let's talk about that. <laughs> no. Okay, who am I supposed to trust? I, you know, who the hell am I supposed to trust? Uh, yeah, no, I'm not, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, I think that's ridiculous. Everything about that is ridiculous. Uh, it's like, you know, you have this performative anti-racism stuff. That, that's, you know, especially, you know, after the after Floyd killing, you know, people were, you know, mostly justifiably outraged and upset, and they wanted to do something. But it created this wave of, you know, like, I mean, the, in response to that, I, I, Frank Dick Cotter has this great book on the Cultural Revolution in China. And that was one of my responses, was to read that. Now, we don't have, we didn't have anything like the Chinese Cultural Revolution. People weren't being tortured or killed and you know, the mass murder didn't happen. But there was this wave of cultural conformity and punishment, usually in the form of firing or loss of position. There was just a wave of this stuff after Lloyd's killing. So in response, and then you have a, a genuine concern about whether it's police abuse in particular or racism in general. I think people are justifiably concerned about those things. And then that manifested in all this. So the incentives were all lined up to make the most extreme anti-racism statements. Like, you know, like anti-racism, you know, like racism is the worst virus. Than, than COVID, which is just ridiculous. It's just completely ridiculous. So, you know, this goes, for me, this goes back to the, the current political stuff. I mean, so many people have died from COVID here. It's like, we're, 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 it's just dysfunctional. And this, you know, like, we can't, I'm, there's a recent report just came out from the CDC, and this is Trump's CDC, that there have been 300,000 excess deaths. So they have these models where they estimate excess deaths. They do it in a number of ways in case the model, you know, this model might be Socratic, they do it that way also. Um, so it's actually more than the total number of COVID deaths. But even the number of COVID deaths is what, 220, 230,000, something. This is so many people. They, so many. You know what? If my choice for sort of you know, highly industrialized technological countries, it could have been a quarter of that. But a functioning government 
could have seen measures that could have cut that by three quarters. So I believe, I'm more worried about that than I do believe that. So we're talking you know, 150, 170, maybe even 200,000 people who would not died this way. This critical race theory, it's, that's just, you can't, you know, you want to advocate it, I, I, I will put off my fight against critical race theory and the sort of descendants of Marxism for another day if what I can get from that is preventing 150,000 deaths. I just, okay. it's just, it's stopping. Okay, I, okay, first of all, like, if you want to talk about, like, Trump did everything wrong. Okay, I shouldn't say everything here. But the first thing he did wrong was, I think it was in 2018, where he when he got rid of that, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. the the the, the yeah. whatever, I don't know what it was, but it was like a council that you know, like organization or something. They were a committee that took care of pandemics and they planned for stuff like that. Yeah. Getting rid of that yeah. was stupid. Okay, that's. Yeah. But now, in late January, early February, when he wanted to close down borders with China, okay, again, your your politics has gotten so bad that if Trump says the sun is going to set in the west, Pelosi won't believe. Yeah. Okay, so right. Trump Trump wants to close down borders with China. What do uh, De Blasio, Pelosi, I can't remember who else. I think it was the the health commissioner from New York comes out. Go to Chinatown for New Year, Chinese New Year. There's no risk. Yeah. Feel no. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. So, okay. Yeah. Now. Okay. I realized back then you didn't have all the information <laughs> you do now, but I'm damn certain that Pelosi had a lot of the secu security information and security briefings that Trump had. So for her to go out and say that was just yeah. as bad as Trump playing it down. Yeah. Like let's let's lay the blame where it deserves to be laid. The huge chunk of it, the majority of it, I say goes on Trump. But you know, Pelosi has to bear some of that. De Blasio has to bear some of what happened in New York City. You know, the other day Chris Cuomo was on CNN. He goes, "Oh, you know, if a vaccine comes out uh, and it's approved by the CDC and the FDA, I don't know if I want to take it." Now, who's causing conspiracy theories here? Who's causing distrust here? Like you know, I don't trust Trump, but at the same point to say that from like a, you know, CNN news anchor. Right. Like, I, you know, for me, I, I watched part of all three debates. I, I didn't watch all of any of them, but there was a point in the vice presidential debate where that was the question, you know, the, you know what will you do if that, some version of what will you do if a vaccine comes out, uh, or maybe it was just asked of Harris. And she gave an answer which I, that, that spoke to me, actually, that, and that is, if Trump says it's viable, I won't believe it. If Fauci says it's viable, I'll believe it. Okay. But, but then, I mean, if the CDC and the FDA, you know, and the AMA approve the vaccine, but Fauci doesn't come out and say it, I mean, are you not going to trust the AMA? Are you not going to trust... Oh. Yeah, no, well, if you have conflicting people that I would give high medical credibility to, well, then, yeah, I would hold off until they reach the action. Yeah, I mean, Fauci is, is, is saying something very different than, like, a, an official pronouncement by the AMA. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'm like, well, what the hell is going on here? Yeah. Okay, no, but yeah. I'm just saying, let's say Fauci doesn't say anything, but the AMA says, okay, it's a good vaccine. The leadership would actually set, like, you know, there are scenarios where Fauci doesn't say anything, but in a functioning government, the head of the CDC would be the foremost spokesman for credible scientific 
uh, medical information. And actually, on that front, I think Fauci's done a pretty good job. And, you know, Fauci, I don't know whether Fauci was actually a Trump appointment or not. If he was, then Trump deserves credit for that. And Trump has mostly worked pretty well with Fauci. So, you know, as much as I, you know, think Trump is mishandled things, I, I think Fauci has been, a, you know, a strong point, actually. Even if he's not a Trump appointment, Trump has worked pretty well with Fauci, actually. So, so Trump actually deserves some credit for handling that reasonably well also, even though overall I think it's really in the same thing. But my, my main point there is that, you know, Fauci's done a good job, but that the role of a functioning federal, central government leadership is to set the tone and agenda for everybody else in major emergencies like COVID. Oh yeah, no. Okay, look, I, I agree with you there. Trump, yeah. I think, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Trump is being terrible, but and, uh, okay, this might be a reason to to vote against him. But you know, the Democrats have, like I said, if Trump says the sun's going to set in the west, the Democrats are going to check, and, and like that—that's a problem. That's a huge problem. And I'm not <laughs> saying that Trump hasn't deserved deserve some of that. Like the guy lies, like it's going out of style, and it's you know, yeah. And again, like that's because you know, I'm not a supporter. I'm not going to vote for the idiot. I wouldn't vote for the idiot. But it's you know, <laughs> it, it's it's like okay, at one point or other, uh, the off topic has nothing to do with any of this stuff. But everything that's going on in the Middle East with Israel right now, okay, you have to give yeah. them credit. Okay, I mean, I saw Chris. Hayes, I, I saw Chris Hayes yeah. yesterday saying, "Oh well, these are just." cynical transactional deals that were done by I saw that, yes. like come on man Saudi Arabia <laughs> like i'm trying to defend but it, it, it's the misinformation thing that really bugs me like, like like when Soleimani got killed right when Soleimani got killed yeah 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 everyone's yeah. like oh my god trump's responsible for that plane being shot down he's responsible for all the protesters that are getting killed it's all trump's fault my my counter yeah. to that was okay those protests actually right now in iran yeah. they brought a lot of attention to it they're they're getting a groundswell yeah. more and more people are going up against that regime what if those protests bring down our regime? Is Trump responsible for that? If he was solely responsible for everything that happened after Soleimani, and those protests are a thing of it, are you going to give him that credit? But yeah, no, look, look, I, 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 you know, I really, I, I really don't like Trump. But I think I can separate out my overall evaluation from, you know, like everything he does is terrible. And I think it's, the, the, I don't know how major his role has been in this, State of treaties and agreements between Israel and various neighbors, but at minimum he hasn't screwed it up, and he, it does look like you know the State Department has facilitated some of that. But he absolutely deserves credit for that. This reminds me, in some extent, this reminds me of the impeachment stuff. So I, I, I mean, I think you know, Trump lies to his people all the time, but that's not an impeachable offense. I, I think he's really corrupt. Although you can be corrupt legally, and I think he has skirted the law around that. But I, you know. I, I, even if he broke some of those laws, that's not completely clear to me. You know, the, the standard for impeachment was uh, um, uh, uh, high crimes and, dis and misdemeanors. 
these are like low crimes. Uh, you know, I, and it's not even misdemeanor in the legal sense. It's, so there was just, Trump could well have been guilty of everything he was accused of, and none of it constituted impeachable offenses, as far as I can tell. And you don't, you don't want to be in the business of impeaching a president unless they really, really engage in some sort of high crime or treason or something like that. So he, he didn't even come close. If you are, this is not like a defense of Trump. You know, he lies, he exaggerates, he, you know, he, he misleads, he's, he's crude, he's, in my opinion, he's corrupt and self-serving. And he's a lot of very bad things. But then, you know, you can't, you can't impeach somebody for being narcissistic. That's like not an impeachable crime. Yeah. No, but okay, but that's just it. Like, I, I'll give you the last word after this is, but, you know, the truth of him is bad enough that you don't need to, you don't need to you don't need to embellish it when you start doing that people lose trust in you like my whole thing with all of this is we have lost trust in our institutions and that's a horrible horrible thing and they're going to need to gain that back and that's going to require a lot of more openness a lot more transparency and a lot less censorship even if it's not oh it's a private business they can do what they want Okay, like this Brett Weinstein thing with Facebook. They they go suspended his account. They told him a review is being done. This is permanent. No further reviews. He raised a stink, rightfully so, because I don't see Brett Weinstein getting canceled, like you know, yeah. doing anything to be suspended for. And they're like, oh well, we we that was an automatic <laughs> thing, and we made a review. It's like, but your message said you'd already done the review. Like, no, so, like so, average Joe who sees that say, okay, I don't have those connections. I lose my account. Right. My account's gone. That's gonna spur up some more conspiracy theories. Like I saw one the other day. It was a blue check journalist. I think it was yesterday. It was right after the Weinstein thing. He's like, oh, I just posted a story about uh, the Biden hard drive, and my Wi-Fi cut out. Is that a coincidence? It's like. Come on, man! Like, like seriously, you know, just. But you're gonna fuel this stuff. You are gonna fuel all this stuff. Yeah. So, I, sorry, like I said, I'll give you the last word if you want to say anything about you know conspiracy theories, extremists, or whatever you want. Let people know where they can get a hold of you and <laughs> cut it short. Yeah, you know, what, uh, I don't know. A few months ago, I'm not even sure if it's still up there because I did delete my tweets for a while. But I did a thread on how. I had a slew of interactions with psychology today, which were not actually political bias or censorship. Yeah. And they kind of looked that way. And superficially, I could see how they would appear, appear that way. And actually, when I eventually published something somewhere else, you know, I played into that by, by doing it as banned by site today. But I was doing that like facetiously, not, you know, but maybe some people don't get the facetiousness. So in every case, like I either violated their rules or it really wasn't psychology. So, you know, and they were right about every, it either did violate their rules, which are announced, like, so I, I mean, I, hate, I really can't stand the infliction of sanctions for plausible sounding arguments on grounds that were never articulated before you decided to sanction somebody. Like, that sounds like post hoc, you don't like them, you don't like their, you don't like their ideas, you don't like the points, you don't like their tone, and you're coming out with faces of bullshit in order to get them off your platform. But that's not what happened. And, and to me, what happened to me, in every case, they clearly articulated their 
standards, I did not follow those. So, you know, that was my thread. So it's not just not everything, not everything that looks like bias, censorship, or suppression actually is. Yeah, no, okay, I'm not, I'm not saying everything <laughs> is, but, okay, the Biden story, to me, that's censorship. Like, that's, that's yeah. outright censorship. And I, I you know, what what Luke Yanoff when you're talking about like I he did a talk at UNC the other day it was a debate well it was a talk with two other people about free speech and he's that was his point and it's the first amendment is the best set of laws or best guidelines for laws for free speech that's out there but the first yeah. amendment is not the end all and be all of the right. principle of free speech because the principle of free speech I mean Milton and Mill I think wrote the two best books on it and they argue a lot about social pressure right as well as the government pressure right and, we need to get rid of that social pressure. But anyways, um, on that note, I think I'm going to end this because I, I don't want to keep you too long. I know you've got your grandkids. So yeah. thanks a lot for talking to me. And you know, uh, I'll confuse people even more and put this out. <laughs> anyways, it was good talking to you. <laughs> so, yeah, this was good. I'm always. Right. Uh, I'll see you next week. And thanks everyone for listening. Bye -bye.